Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to draw your attention to the two ways you can support the podcast financially. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, I've set up a Just Giving page where you can help the show continue on into the future by donating as much or as little as you like. Alternatively, there are six different levels of subscription starting from just £5 a month over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. There you will find two new podcast series, a monthly bulletin, group and personal Zoom meetings, articles, mini episodes attached to this series, and even the chance to have some conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, and I'd greatly appreciate any help you can manage. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Russian conductor who studied at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki before going on to have jobs with three different Finnish orchestras. He's also principal conductor with an orchestra in Spain and has a very high-profile career as a guest conductor with some of the world's top orchestras. It's a real pleasure to welcome Dima Slobodanyuk. Dima, lovely to chat to you today. How are you? Uh, hi, Michael. Very well, very well. Uh, just arrived in Lahti where I had my first rehearsal with uh, my Lachti Symphony. So, yeah, after two weeks of current Two weeks of quarantine. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and how was your first rehearsal? I've just um, rehearsed the CBSO for two days ahead of their centenary concert with Simon Rattle, uh, and probably the first time they'd ever sat two metres apart to rehearse. How was it in Lachti? Yeah, also, also two metres apart. Actually, I'm not sure whether it is one and a half or two. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would say sufficient distance. And they found it easy to, to uh, adjust? Yeah, I would say surprisingly uh, quickly. Mm. Uh, we did find a way, yeah, to communicate. Um, actually, just to mention that we are not in our hall, Sibelius Hall at the moment, because it's under, you know, reconstruction. So, so we are kind of forced to rehearse in a, in a smaller hall and mm. uh, it's much easier to hear each other there so so this, this distance on the stage is not really you know producing any any problems at the moment we did think in the cbso that actually it might be good going forwards when we all get used to get back to sitting in the normal distance apart um that to, to be to listen harder it might be a very good um, training for going back to normal. Oh, yes. Uh, many times when, you know, an issue comes in the orchestra rehearsal and people say that, well, I can't hear that. Uh, <laughs> actually, the reality is usually that, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, right? <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's not a case that you can't so, hear it. You just didn't, you weren't listening hard enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. It's, you, you just have to find another way of listening. Exactly. Or, you know. Yeah. Mm, playing less, listening more, and have yeah. really forced to do something in order to, you know, survive, then you survive. Mm. Um, Dima, with everybody, I go back right to the beginning of your life. And how did music first come into your life? You were born in Russia. I'm, uh, I'm right there, aren't I? Yeah, I was born in Moscow. Uh, how did music come into my life? Actually, I have no idea. I don't remember. Um, I think my parents would be... <laughs> <laughs> the, the right uh, people to ask that but um, uh, as long as I remember myself there has always been music and uh, in particular classical music so because my all my relatives including my parents grandparents and their siblings you know they were all musicians so oh, wow. there was no there was no other way and 
and I mean, in good and in bad. It's it's um, you know I'm really grateful for for the you know this surrounding and uh, all the circumstances which I just you know I was just born into it and grew having it as um, you know for granted. Mm. Uh, for many many people it is not but obviously you know together with uh, all the benefits uh, you also get some negative sides on that because you you kind of you only get a lot of influence from one side and not yes. enough of influence influences from you know from the other fields mm. but i guess i compensated that later in my life <laughs> and you're a violinist yes but do i mean did you also learn piano and sing and um do all the other stuff all the other stuff i don't know but <laughs> i did play piano well actually <laughs> i i had to i had to play piano because yeah. it was uh compulsory which was part of the problem because if if you have to do something you usually are not as motivated as if you really want to do something yeah. And uh, obviously, uh, that got compensated um, as well because I got much more interested in piano playing later on mm. when I really didn't have to do that. But as long as I was in school, music school, it was compulsory for all string players and obviously wind players to play piano. So, yeah, violin was my main instrument uh, from the beginning. I started playing in, in the age of five and played until 2001 yeah yeah uh, when I, when i got my degree from uh, sibelius academy which which means that you grew up for a lot of your childhood through soviet russia and previous conductors i've spoken to grew up in a, under a, some sort of soviet regime christian machelor in romania andris nelsons in latvia said that music school also included choirs and and formal training in harmony. Um, was that true? Oh, yeah. Uh, very much true. Uh, by the way, talking about Wikipedia, um, I was actually 16 when I moved to... <laughs> to ah, well, <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> Wikipedia <laughs> is wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah anyway. Um, well, yes. I actually studied at uh, Central Music School in Moscow. Yeah. It was considered as, well... I don't know, hard to say, but at that time they always talked about it as the the best and the most prestigious. They, well, they expected you to be able to, you know, hear and identify different um, intervals, uh, chords, uh, just, you know, notes yeah. uh, on piano. Obviously, they did not, um, you know, expect you to have a perfect pitch. Right. But what happened is that because my mother really worked with me a lot before the entrance examination, so we spent probably a couple of summers and, well, everything in between, uh, she spent training my ear. Mm. And uh, the outcome, I don't know whether, whether it is due to that or thanks to, you know, is perfect pitch a genetic thing? That's <laughs> a big question. Yeah. But I ended up, ended up having a perfect pitch so I could hear all the notes separately or together you know in any order and that was not difficult for me but the requirements were yeah pretty tough you know yeah. for for a seven-year-old pretty, pretty rigorous training um 
so now we know that Wikipedia is wrong and you left <laughs> to go to Helsinki at 16. You mentioned earlier the Sibelius Academy and I'm assuming it is while you were there studying the violin that you um, entered into thinking about conducting. And the Sibelius Academy, there are three names linked to you with, as teachers, two of which have come up a couple of times or many times in the case of Jorma Panela on previous podcasts, but also Leif Sagerstam uh, talking about going into a forest and screaming. But the other name that I see on there, which is a name I know, but maybe my listeners don't, is somebody called Atso Almila. Um, how did the classes work between the three teachers and their approaches? What, were the, what was it like studying with those three big names? Oh, it was, I think it was a, a fantastic system at that time. Mm. Uh, it, did, it did change after I left, um, but, well, after I finished the school, but, but we had a very balanced uh, way of um, sharing the lessons. Obviously, they would come in and teach in turns. Mm. And uh, Jorma is, of course, well, is and he was the one who started the the dynasty of of Finnish uh, kind of conducting school. So mm. he was not a professor anymore at that time. In fact, between him and Leif, who was uh, occupying the the post of professor at that time, um, there was Eric Klass also. Okay. Uh, so so Leif was the main teacher. Uh, he started, I think, one year before I entered the school, well, the conducting class, and um, and I graduated with him being my main teacher. But uh, Jorma taught us regularly, very systematically, mm. and Atso, Atso too. So we would have, let's say, 60-70% of, of our lessons with Leif and uh, the rest with him with uh, Jorma and uh, Atsu. And, and what the Sibelius Academy has, and I'm assuming you had then, which very few places have, is an orchestra that you can conduct regularly, every week, um, which gives you podium time and away from the dreaded two piano classes. Um, were the teachers always there when during those sessions and and did they focus on your musicianship or was there a lot of technique stick technique and rehearsal technique yeah that's uh, that's a, an important and very interesting question um well first of all the way it was kind of constructed um on thursday we would meet just between us so mm -hmm. uh just just us students and we would play for you know each other so we would all bring our instruments and mm -hmm. play form a, a, a small orchestra and uh, for example Jorma would sit at the piano and play all the you know missing stuff yeah, yeah. and and we would conduct in turns so that was Thursday but then Friday and Saturday uh, we would have all together three hour rehearsals mm -hmm. which were divided by the amount of people who were present at that time and um, that was very, you know, we really did calculate. So 11 minutes is 11 minutes, and that's <laughs> not 12 minutes. And uh, so everybody got an even amount, and fair amount of, of time. Um, and yes, there was always a teacher, was it Leif or, or, or Jorma or Atso, they were always there. And concentrating on different things, I would yeah. say um, Leif... Leif did 
concentrate on technical stuff. Well, for me, it was a bit different with everybody. But for me, it was, let's say, first year or first half a year. He would not let me kind of advance before I fixed my my right hand. So mm. so that the, the um, he called it calligraphy in uh, in the in the right hand. Mm. So that the kind of the, the beauty was there. So it was not improvised. You know, where is one and where is two and where is three? And uh, so he was very particular with that. I I still remember actually because they. You know, sometimes we had sessions dedicated to certain pieces so that everybody did more or less the same repertoire. And then sometimes we could choose ourselves what we needed to do. Maybe some people who already had some gigs, they wanted to bring in the, you know, a piece of or a couple of pieces to to try it out. But those times when we did, you know, concentrate on the same piece, and in my case, the first lesson ever in the conducting class was Mahler 9, first first movement oh wow that's tough <laughs> and that's that's quite quite something to start with mm-hmm. and um and i remember i conducted first uh until the first climax um let's say first two three minutes then he Leif stopped and said well um technically and then followed a <laughs> a <laughs> an analysis of the uh, you know uh, trajectory of my right hand yeah. uh, so so that put me pretty much on the right floor of where yeah. we are so like okay you are starting with modern i fine but you you need to learn to conduct in four first <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it would be a good start wouldn't it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> he did he didn't say it exactly like that but i got mm. the point yes so yeah, it's uh, the other. My other question, mainly through studying with Yorma for uh, an in, very intensive two weeks, was, was everything videoed in in your classes? And did you then go back over the videos with Leif and with Atso, uh, or even with Yorma, who was coming in at the time? Do, do, was video used? Because I know in some schools it is, and in others it isn't. Always, hmm. always, always video, and. Uh... Yorma was the prophet of that yeah. uh, kind of of that idea. I think it's fantastic. It's it's mm. it's extremely extremely useful. Uh, I would say it is fifty percent of the outcome is because you get to see yourself, mm, and because and because if uh, well if a person is more or less okay psychologically and you know not an, a narcissist uh, who loves to see him or herself but usually people have great difficulties watching themselves conduct mm, so true. if you can overcome that uh, negative aspect and really look at yourself and analyze what is it exactly that you are doing what you shouldn't be doing mm. and uh, and i i would say you know having them let's say Leif sit there and show you exactly look you did this and then happened this so mm. you, you always mm. you learned you learned to understand that what you are doing really really matters and and you know, as you said not many schools have uh, orchestra 
mm. so there you really learn the interaction you know you don't learn to conduct you learn to interact with people mm. and uh, right. and video is extremely important because otherwise you have no idea really Well, the, the analogy I was going to use, it's just popped into my head while you were talking about that, is, you know, the, the great thing about video sessions as a conductor is that you can look back at what you were doing in the heat of battle in, whilst you're conducting. When you're conducting, you really shouldn't be thinking about the technicalities of things. It's a, li a lot like a, a golfer or a, a batsman at cricket in the fact that when you go and play a round of golf, or you, you bat uh, an innings for your cricket team, you shouldn't be thinking about the technicalities. You should just be doing it. It's afterwards then you go to your coach and talk it through. And I think that's the same thing with the video and, and conducting, is that when you're actually conducting, you should be interacting with the people and dealing with the musical problems. And But you shouldn't be thinking, you know, actually, my thumb should be holding the bat on this way and my left hand should be in this shape. Do you agree? I think that's why, how it helps. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, on on one plate, it's this, and on another plate, it's the process of learning. Sometimes, you know, um, conductors usually are not supposed to lose their face in front mm. of the orchestra, mm. and even young conductors uh, who come into the class, they already know that. Mm. And and sometimes, for you to really learn. Uh, you need to momentarily lose your face in front of the orchestra <laughs> there right. yeah. in the class. Mm. So, so sometimes you really have to go and try something, uh, even you know something mechanical or something on the expression side, which actually Leif did talk about. Mm. Mm, you know things things which are not very obvious. Right? So you you had to really go into dive into yourself on the spot and yeah. uh, kind of be be vulnerable vulnerable and uh, and kind of uh, not not being that <laughs> that uh, you know self self uh, yeah, a secure conductor who knows everything yeah it's, exactly that's not true <laughs> yeah it's not especially at that age it's not true and you have yeah you have to make mistakes so how long yeah. were you in the conducting class and when you finished the conducting class did you immediately go out into the big wide world and start guesting or did you do competitions and other master classes around the world what was your your journey out of the Sibelius Academy and into the big wide world of, of conducting uh, it was quite gradual actually very gradual um, I finished well I started 98 and finished 2001 mm. so I graduated uh, from uh, Valin and conducting in the same year and uh, already well from 99 I started having gigs in Finland mm. and uh, Finland is actually a very nice uh, field for a young conductor to develop because uh, here mm, well people kind of know each other mm. and orchestras do seem to give opportunities to young conductors well you, you have you've just circumvented my question in about three questions time but let's talk about it now in the fact that the Finns do tend to support very young talent in their country and 
nurture it and and give them jobs um, when they're young. You know, I think of Zachary Oromo and Susanna Malki getting jobs when they're young. And currently, people like Dalia Statevska and Klaus Mekele, you know, they're encouraged. Do you think that's a particularly finished trait? And if so, why why are they like that? Um, I think it's not a particularly finished thing, but mm. uh, perhaps Finland was one of the first countries to start that. And uh, I think Jorma uh, had quite a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Because he would arrange all these courses, I mean, masterclasses uh, involving these orchestras. So sometimes uh, even someone studying at that Isabel Academy, he would, uh, he would, he or she would participate in his masterclass mm. with one of the orchestras. And so people get to know them and and so, you know, uh, I would say it seemed like a very natural process, but mm. obviously it didn't work for everybody. No, no. Um, you know, I, I think I arrived in Finland pretty much last, in the last moment for someone to, to be able to absorb this new culture. I was 16, uh, not too young, not too old, mm. uh, just, you know, you know, let's say five, six years later, it would have been much more difficult for me. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but I, I did get along with Finns pretty well, and I still do. Mm. And um, and I think maybe part of me really needed that, you know, to to fill in something I've been missing before. So I was very hungry to learn new culture and, and new ways of doing and and i actually grew into it. It, it it just it's not like a parallel reality it actually is my, <laughs> myself yeah, yeah so so it went it went well for me and uh, i just went from orchestra to orchestra little by little so 10 years um about well nine years let's say if i started having gigs in 99 by 2008 uh, I was conducting quite a lot, so I could make my living in Finland without yeah. going abroad. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. From, from 2008, then things started happening, happening abroad. Mm. Which is possibly where I played for you. And I remember you coming to Birmingham. Um, uh, yes. And you conducted Nielsen's Fourth Symphony. And we did a little minute, we went up to Manchester as well. Um, the, your first couple of jobs, as you said, um, would be in Finland, a principal guest of the Kimi or Kumi Sinfonietta. Uh, it's Ku Kumi. Kumi. Um, uh, I can do some Finnish pronunciations, but uh, <laughs> that, that one stumped me. Uh, uh, <laughs> and then, very well. Uh, and then chief conductor of uh, Ulo. Is that, is that how you pronounce that? Um, uh, from 05 to 08. And now you're in Lati um, as the boss and have been since 2016. Yeah. But then, of course, guesting. And guesting, you know, I, I went onto your agent's website and the list of places you've been is amazing. And I wanted to ask you a specific question that I don't think I've asked anybody else, actually, in the fact that, you know, from, as you said, from about 2008 onwards, you're, you're now fully immersed in a conducting world. But, you know, when you come to conduct somebody like the Berlin Philharmonic or the Leipzig Gewandhaus or the Concertgebouw for the first time, What's it like? Do you what thought processes do you have? Obviously, you're excited, but then maybe nerves come into it, and and uh, programming and all of that. What? How do you approach the uh, a debut with a big, big, big orchestra like that? Um, 
beforehand it's it's uh, you know it's enormous joy yes that you are you know you're giving the opportunity to make music on highest possible level mm. and uh, on the spot it's always finding the keys to these doors uh, yes uh, it's with as with any orchestra uh, regardless of the level uh, and especially with with the orchestras you mentioned you have to have the flexibility and that that is perhaps the thing which you know makes me uh, well talking about nerves that makes me mm, that makes me nervous and sometimes insecure you know yeah. am I on the spot do I have the flexibility to keep myself open and react to to what's going on mm. and uh, I think just making music with them it's uh, it's a great joy yeah but I yeah. find it I find it very similar to the joy of music making anywhere. Yes. So, so some, somehow these huge names, which make you as well, relatively young conductor, uh, rather nervous and the expectations are huge. Mm. Uh, and still the trick in my case, I don't know about, about the others, but in my case is to keep myself open and just to be myself. Mm. And not to overtry, you know that. So that's a challenge, a challenge for me. When and when I did achieve that, then that makes you extremely happy. Yes, it, you're absolutely. I mean, I, I completely agree with you about being yourself wherever you are. It doesn't matter whether it's the Berlin Phil or uh, any other orchestra. Uh, if to, you've got to be yourself, because first of all, the musicians will see straight through you if you're not. And when you, you know, if you're open to what the musicians give back to you and ideas and phrasings and, um, and and be immersed in the process it really helps the other comment I was going to make was that Andres Nelsons once said to me if you go to the Berlin Phil and you don't have lots and lots of ideas to, to give them things don't go well um, <laughs> do you agree with that I, that comment or uh, about the fact that you need lots of ideas and obviously you'd be fully prepared you know this is something I've been many times afraid of that, mm. uh, you know, actually, you know, as you started, uh, you know, conducting the orchestras, their level is getting higher and higher. Mm. And then always when you step up to a new level, you think, oh, oh, oh damn, I'm not going to, I don't have anything to say to them. <laughs> but I never, never had that problem. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and I was surprised every time, every time this happened, I was surprised. Mm. Um, but, but I can very well under, and I can, you know, I absolutely agree with Andres because yeah. uh, these groups of musicians, they are very hungry and, mm -hmm. uh, and they are very good musicians themselves separately and together mm. because, you know, sometimes you have orchestras where you have great musicians separately, but, but being that team, which is used to doing things, you know, if you don't feed them with your ideas, they will do things the, their way. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And they will do them very well, and you will feel very outsider. Mm. Uh, and that's what you don't want to, to be happening. So you, ha you need to grasp, uh, kind of get the, you know, catch, uh, hold the bull by, by the horns. Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, is, that is much more difficult than perhaps anything in, in that situation. Mm.
So currently you hold two jobs, one in Lahti in Finland, and the other one is the Orquesta Sinfonica de Galicia in uh, A Coruña in Spain, which you've been their principal conductor since 2013. What are the differences like working with uh, an orchestra full of Finnish musicians and your orchestra in Spain? Are there any differences? Um, uh, the only thing I would say is that having looked at the orchestra in Galicia, they're quite a young orchestra in, in age. They've, they were only founded in 1992, weren't they? Has that made any difference? What, what's it like having the two jobs in Spain and Finland? Uh, it's a very exciting time. Um, mm. Not easy because they are very far apart, actually, you know, living in europe you don't find orchestras you know further from each other than than this mm. no, at least not very much um so traveling wise it's been uh, quite tough but working with them uh, i mean they are very different yeah. uh, as you said uh, galician orchestra is just about 27 28 years old um and people their musicians are obviously very um, as, as a group, by age, they're very close, mm -hmm. but the amount of nationalities in that orchestra is from 15 to 20, something oh, like wow. this. So, yeah, yeah. so it's, a, it's a very diverse, diverse group. Uh, in Lahti, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit smaller orchestra, very different hall, which is very, very important. Uh, well, this hall is pretty amazing, this uh, Sibelius Hall here in Lahti. Mm. Uh, perhaps one of the best halls I've ever been to. And, um, and uh, the way of working is more of that which I kind of grew into while starting my career. Yes. So, yes. so I've, I've started going to Lahti, you know, as early as uh, actually my symphonic uh, diploma concert was in Lahti in 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so the first time I came here, that was my diploma. Yeah. So yeah. They've, they've known you a while. <laughs> yes. And since, since then I've been, I've been here every year or every second year. So, mm. so yeah, it's a, it's a long relationship. Going back to guesting, do you enjoy, I've called them first dates in the past, um, getting to know an orchestra for the first time. What are the challenges that you find separate from what we were talking about with the Berlin Phil, but you know, just generally, what challenges do you find when you travel to a new place, you stand in front of an orchestra for the first time and you put that downbeat down and you have no idea what's going to come back? Um, tell us what that's like and how you process that. Uh, in the beginning, it's the case every week uh, mm. because almost almost every orchestra is, is a new, it's new orchestra. Yeah. But then you get, you get used to that. I, I don't kind of... I, I, I'm not so nervous about that. I'm not so worried about the first downbeat. And uh, I try to keep myself doing, you know, doing the same thing regardless of the orchestra, obviously. Mm. Especially in case that you are doing the same piece on consecutive weeks with two different orchestras. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, uh, <laughs> the same keys, they just don't work. Mm. Uh, you know, you've achieved something in one place and then you're moving on and then you seem okay well we have to start from scratch it's not going to be the same mm. so so you find you find a path to that final result which you have in your in your mind and which will certainly be different from from the previous week 
and you just have to find a new path. So I'm more curious about really hearing what happens after the first downbeat than I'm afraid of that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, it, and it becomes a puzzle, doesn't it? You know, to use your, your analogy of doing the same piece one week and then doing the same piece the next week with a new orchestra, you know, I often say to conducting students I've had, the gesture you used in week one is guaranteed not to work in week two with a different set of musicians. Absolutely. You have to, yeah, you Absolutely. have to approach it differently and start again and, and react to what comes at you. It's no good learning a set of dance moves to go along with a symphony. Um, you know, you've got to get in there and, and work out what's coming back at you and how the interaction's going on. Absolutely. No dance, no dance moving uh, moves at all. Whenever <laughs> I, I give lessons or, you know, they ask me to teach, Actually, we have we have a little um, masterclass going in Galicia, and whenever I see that that my new uh, younger colleagues they start looking like uh, Carlos Kleiber or, or Claudia Bado, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always asking them the same questions. By any chance, you have not watched too a little bit too much of Carlos Kleiber and trying to imitate him. <laughs> yeah, Are yeah. you not? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean the problem is that you know every conductor probably watches the the very few Carlos Kleiber videos that there are, and you know, and and sometimes a little bit too obsessively, and then you get to conduct Brahms two or Beethoven seven or Beethoven four, or Brahms four, and you think, don't do a Kleiber move there. <laughs> it's just, it, yeah. it, bec it becomes like that, and you're so right. I've seen students who conducted those pieces or Kleiber pieces, and you think, yeah, you've watched that video far too often. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> And that's what's really so fascinating about this this profession is that mm. you know what he gets with with the same moves uh, you will not. No. And uh, that's no. the best about it. Otherwise, it would be really boring. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, you could just put a clone up there and it would work every time. But no, you've got to get it. You've got to get involved with what comes back at you and 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 deal with the situation in the room. And one thing, I I need to mention just yes. a quick comment about about this. Because actually, from my experience, from my observation, you will get the orchestra, you know, the orchestra will play well for you if they want to, mm. you know, and the job is to get them to want to play well for you. Yes. That's the thing. You can't force them. Well, you can, but in 21st century, not anymore. Mm. But uh, that's not the same. You can't force them to, to make great music with you. Mm. But they have to want to do that, and for that you need um, to win, you know, authority over them. Yeah, and also as a previous conductor said on the podcast, yes, you need to win the authority, but also you, it's very easy to lose them very quickly as well by saying and doing the wrong things. You know, I think an orchestra, having sat in one for twenty-two years, on a Monday morning with a brand new guest conductor. Is they want it to work. They, you know, nobody sits there thinking, go on, fail. Everybody wants it to work. Everybody wants a great week of music making. Um, but it's, yeah. quite, it, it's quite easy to lose them within five minutes with a, you know, the wrong sentence or the, you know, the wrong atmosphere or attitude. Um, so, yes, it's partly winning. It's also partly not losing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, the next question I've asked everybody, and... It's mainly for the conducting geeks, but I think a lot of people now are finding this quite interesting. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a system for learning it? Do you use a piano or the violin, or do you just sit at your desk, and how do you learn it? 
And when you learn a new score, are you somebody who writes a lot of things in your scores in pencil of many colours, or do you like to keep your scores completely blank? Yeah, uh, I, I do have a system. Uh, I think it's not a very, um, how would I say? I have not built the system, it just appeared. Because yeah. that's how mm. that's how I learned. So uh, I use only a pencil of normal color, no mm. colors. Um, I did at some point, but then I realized that I'm, you know, I'm reading over only that and not yeah. actually the score. <laughs> so, so I tried to keep keep the markings to minimum, but the result is uh, not always <laughs> not always that. Mm. So, so my scores do look quite you know, digested. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, it's a good word. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and I guess that's what I do. I, I try to digest and understand the score. Um, writing things helps me to remember what I was thinking while reading it. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and it's not like I'm not trying to just make it easy for me to read the score on this on the rehearsal, though it often is also that. But also, you know, as as you go through the score slowly, um, a lot of things come up, mm. and uh, then I try to choose which information, which of the ideas which I had, which of them I really want myself to see at the rehearsal. After one read through of the score, mm. I my aim is to be able to go and conduct it. Yes. So, so I take quite a lot of time. To read one, you know, one piece from from beginning till the end. Yeah. But just in case I don't have any more time to study, that read through would will have to be, you know, sufficient for me to take the score and go and rehearse it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if under no, normal circumstances I do have more time, then I start from the beginning and uh, and start making uh, kind of I, I start from from the details into more, you know, into bigger arcs. And, and yeah, yeah. so I start, start with details actually. And uh, if, it's the, if it's the piece which I know, then it makes it easier, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but but if, it, if, it, it's, if, it's the, if it's any kind of new piece, actually it serves its purpose. So I really pick up every stone and kind of study it. Well, I think that that's what makes this question so fascinating is that I, I'm pretty similar to you in that regard. And, you know, I start at the beginning and work my way through detail by detail. And then afterwards, I might go over and look at the bigger picture and the architecture. Whereas other conductors have come on and said, no, oh, I flick through it straight away, try and get the architecture and then go in and go in and go in. And so it's almost the complete opposite. And also the same with markings. Some conductors say, I want nothing in my score. And others like me, I use red, blue and black. Um, uh, and the, it, it, it doesn't matter how you have it, as long as you have a system and it works for you, then good. Uh, that's, you know, that's seems to be what's coming out of this question time and time again, is that we're all different. We're all different people. And we just learn and study and assimilate this stuff, this music in our own way to make it work so that we can conduct. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. Uh, it's very personal and you can't really teach someone to to mark the score but you could teach to study it yes and to to analyze that that you can teach but Mm. uh, the rest is really personal
Dima, it is time for the 10 questions, and the first two come as one. What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, I love uh, the sound of the water, mm. and uh, hate uh, too much music in my head. <laughs> There's a lovely line that Simon Rattle once said in an interview where he said, growing up, he had a constant soundtrack in his head. And it was only much later, in it, as a teenager, he realised that not everybody else in the world was like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very smart. It's, it's very much as it is, really. And, and, and you know, that soundtrack can be anything from the latest piece you've been studying to, you know... A, a, a melody that goes round and round and round in your head like an earworm. Um, but it is always there, isn't it? I've, I've always got something going round and round in my head. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's unavoidable. It's, it's, just, it's just how it is. But um, I don't feel good if, if there is just too much. I need to, you know, I need to get out somewhere mm. to, to, wipe, to wipe my hard disk. <laughs> good phrase. Uh, the next question. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Uh, depending on what I have with me, mm. um, either going out uh, to the forest, nature, whatever nature, mm. or doing some photography, Ooh. Yeah. or flying an airplane, or, well, as my new hobby goes, um, sailing. Photography. Do you have specific subjects you like to photograph? Are you a whilst you're out on your walks, do you somebody who takes a landscape, or or are you into architecture? What what sort of things do you like? Um, no, I would say nothing in specific. I wish I could photograph photograph more people, mm. uh, but it is a little bit problematic. Uh, you know, you don't just you know walk up to you know to someone and say, "Excuse me, can I take a photo of you?" Mm. Uh, but you know, having a, the right equipment, you can photograph people from the distance and without them knowing it. But so far, I haven't found myself really at home there. So, mm. so I photograph anything which catches my attention and which I start seeing as more than what it is. Mm. You know, mm. I I want to make a photo of how I see it, not how it looks like. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Ah, uh, that is very, very difficult question. Um, well, if you think this one's difficult, wait for the next one. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So, which which means that I just have to answer this one. <laughs> anyway, um, there are too many to name. Mm. So, I would say, if I name uh, Nicholas Harnukur, mm. um, this would be as close as it gets. Yeah. But he's not the only one. But He's the first one who comes to my mind, mm. um, partly because I'm doing Beethoven this week. <laughs> okay, yeah and, yeah. and so, so he he has been an example of good taste, mm. and example of uh, style knowledge, an example of honesty in music making, very often to me. So. So I probably, I mean, I have no trouble naming him as as the only. But obviously, there are so many more. That's a brilliant answer. 
So, yeah, if you thought uh, a favourite conductor of yesteryear was a difficult question, let's go for and who would be a favourite current conductor? <laughs> Daniel Harding actually said to me that he thought this was a cruel question. Um. <laughs> it, it is a cruel question. Uh, because I don't want to feel, uh, you know, obliged to, to answer something. I actually, I would feel comfortable saying that there is no one mm. uh, meaning that you know it's not like I don't like any any of uh, of uh, you know living conductors on the contrary I like so many of them that I really have no chance of naming one so uh, so the answer will be no dash <laughs> <laughs> Well, other people have given a very similar answer, and but at least what you've done is quantified by saying that there are so many um, that you like currently, which is you know, which is it's true. It, there are so many great conductors out there. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, yeah, actually, the only way to answer this is to pick up few few choices. Um, yeah. Technically, technically, I would say uh, Sinfonia of uh, Luciano Berio. Huh? is uh is pretty tricky uh, mm -hmm. i remember it as as one of them also grandma cabar by Ligeti uh -huh, yeah. is is very very tricky uh is and was so technically i would say yeah perhaps um, okay let's pick up the third one into this category mm -hmm. um it's a mono opera called neither by morton feldman okay uh that's that's hard stuff uh, on many you know on many levels yeah. um it's hard stuff psychologically technically um in terms of rehearsing it and uh, in terms of uh, you know holding it together so yeah that's technic technicality mm. now on on the emotional level um i have to name tchaikovsky six oh. uh, which i a few years ago stopped performing consciously because I felt that uh, it was a little bit too much to take. Um, mm. It's it every time I conducted it, it emptied me completely. Uh, you know, like everything there was and a little bit more. Mm. And as and then I think I had one performance where I felt that, okay, well, I pretty much know how it goes now. So I can, you know, relax a little bit. And after that performance, I decided not to do it anymore. <laughs> for a while, for a while, because it's the piece which is supposed to be like, you know, putting salt on, on the wound mm. and uh, uh, kind of fresh cut. Uh, it, has to, it has to touch you in, in the most direct way to be able to touch audience. Mm. And uh, so that's, I, I feel that that is very complicated piece uh, emotionally and psychologically. Well, I mean, yeah. the great thing about this question is that very rarely are the answers ever the same. And, and what a brilliant answer, especially the Tchaikovsky. Uh, I'm going to zone in on the Grand Macabre, you know, by Ligeti. What makes that more staggering is knowing that Barbara Hannigan sings it and conducts it at the same time, um, which just, yes. <laughs> just astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I don't want to even think about it. But Barbara, <laughs> I mean, I make myself more, you know, I place a piece in myself by by 
by thinking that Barbara is doing many other things, which I can never even dream of to, to <laughs> you know, to do. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, that's a separate, separate conversation. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Uh, I don't have anything I just need to have with me, uh, apart from the uh, things which you mentioned. For the listener, the things that I mentioned uh, are things that are banned and that you're not allowed to say, which is passport, battle, yeah. phone or scores. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. And the rest is the rest is inside me. Uh, so mm. whenever I if I need something else, it's uh, it's in me yeah. or or I can find it uh, wherever I am. But mm. uh, there is nothing really I need to take from home apart from what you mentioned. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I would change um, the whole pattern of having a career as a conductor and what it means. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. at the moment, um, having a career as a conductor means that you're not at home. Mm. And uh, I find that problematic because mm. being a conductor, you need to face people and uh, having all the um, all your human, um, spiritual, and uh, emotional parts of your being in in balance, and being away from home for you know so many weeks a year uh, disbalances you. Mm. Uh, so so I feel that if that can be changed, I would change it. But at the moment, let's see if COVID will arrange things uh, differently in future. But uh, at, the mo at the moment, it's, you kind of have to make a choice. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, that leads on to an interesting question, which um, for somebody like you, you know, uh, who has a job in Spain and in Lati, and I think you, you told me off the record that your main, you live mainly in Spain, is that right? Um, that yeah. you know, if you had to spend more time at home, people like yourself with, with two jobs in two different countries might have to give one up um, because you know of COVID and how things have changed. Uh, I mean, I've often thought that maybe after COVID, people will be booking people, conductors to conduct their orchestras from within their own country more because of quarantine reasons. You know, you you said you know you've had to sitting quarantine for two weeks in Finland before conducting you know what do you think about that going on in the future or do you think we'll just return one day fairly soon to what it was like before I think complete you know complete return to what it was before is not possible um, mm. things will things will be changed they are already you know they have changed um, as you know for for myself I'm actually starting my last season here in Lahti Mm. Um, this will, this is my fifth season here, so so from uh, from the next uh, fall from from August twenty one, uh, Dalia Stasevka is is starting mm. here as a chief conductor. So this way I will be left with one, with an orchestra mm. in Galicia, which is at the same at the same time time my home. Yes, uh, at the at the moment. So I don't really know, and especially. Um, being in this situation of you know of crisis at the moment, I really don't know what's going to be happening after that. But mm. uh, I take one day at a time. Yeah. Well, I think that's 
uh, the way I look at it is that there's no point in me worrying about my my hand of cards at poker until somebody actually deals me the cards. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to start. Very well said. Yeah, very it's not well going to start yeah. worrying about the future until I know what, you know, what, what's coming. Very, very wise answer. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would be a pilot. Um, ah. And that's, yeah, I don't even have to think about it. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, Dan Harding, um, he went further than myself. Well, he obviously, you know, got himself professional license and mm. actually worked. And if I understand correctly, still uh, works with Air France. Yes. Um, and uh, as for myself, I think flying for airline would not be my dream job. Mm. But uh, flying professionally, yes, mm. for perhaps something else. Um, even, uh, you know, thinking of um, flying uh, goods to, um, to faraway villages in uh, South America or Africa. Mm. Mm. Uh, things like this, I mean, um, or uh, let's say flying an uh, ambulance plane uh, anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, so how long have you so been that, flying? That kind of thing. I've been flying since 2006, mm. so about 14, 14 years. There seems to be quite a lot of, uh, this, is, this is the most regular answer, and I think this is now... You were about the fourth or fifth. The only person who I wouldn't allow to say pilot was actually Daniel Hardy because he is one. So that's cheating. Uh, he had to come up with another profession. Um, but yeah, there, there are quite a few people who really into into flying and like you have, have gone on and taken their private pilot's license and, and done it. Um, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I went... I would say this has nothing to do with conducting whatsoever mm. because so many people always, oh, okay, conductors, they always want to fly. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a coincidence mm. and um, mm, I don't know. Maybe it's an explainable coincidence. I don't know. But uh, me having private license, private pilot license and my instrument rating, which keeps my flying into, you know, in, in a more um, kind of demanding way, mm. um, I'm okay with that. Mm. And uh, and if I had to do a kind of commercial, I would do it. Do you think it is the sort of thing that empties the mind of of your job and music, and because you have to concentrate so hard on the job of flying that it, it you know, it's it's that old, that old thing about using the other half of your brain or a different part of your brain. You know, I know that the things that I like to do in my time off, nothing to do with music generally tend to use the other bit of my brain. Do you think it's one of those? Um, having never flown, I don't know. Yes, I'm sure it is. Mm. Your body just needs to balance itself. So, so I would say, just as you can't think about anything else when you're conducting, then you definitely can't think of anything else when you're flying. Mm. Uh, and if you do, you are in danger. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much the same as conducting as well. <laughs> or at least yes, you, you... <laughs> <laughs> with, no, with a with a little with a little uh, variation that if you if you do in your conducting, you already you are lost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> but and also the fact that the orchestra will fly itself to a point, whereas you know a plane will probably start crashing quite quickly if you lose your concentration. Um, yeah, eventually. <laughs> and finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? 
Oh my God! You saved the best for last. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, what it does is it gives a little window into the soul. You know, that find out what people like to eat and drink. We all have to eat and drink, so you know that's. I started to think about other things, but there was one thing which came to my mind first, and I'm going to say it now. Good. Um, I'd like to eat a portion of thing which is called poroncaristus, and that is. Uh, reindeer meat prepared in a uh, Lapish way, so from Lapland. Mm. And I'd like to eat that um, at the fire in the forest somewhere in Lapland. Mm. And as about drink, I don't know, um, pretty much anything. Uh, I don't care really. Um, <laughs> it can be, yeah, it can be red wine or it can be a shot of um, vodka or something like this. Uh, for sure, not champagne, which I love, mm. but wouldn't suit the <laughs> wouldn't suit the case. <laughs> no. And uh, so, so, yeah, something like this. It's not only the meal; it's it's also where to uh, yes. where to enjoy. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask whether a shot of vodka in a in a forest setting um, in Lapland would be a very good thing. And talking of very good things. Uh, the whole last hour has been a very good thing. I've loved chatting to you, Dima, and I hope to see you very, very soon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, wonderful one hour of uh, interesting subjects. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to the first Australian conductor to appear on the podcast probably the most famous Australian conductor conducting today. Her career has taken her from her studies and early days working in Australia and then on to working all across the globe, including being chief conductor and chief executive at the Hamburg State Opera. And soon she will be returning home to start as chief conductor with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in 2022. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>